0: This program is the second in a series of audio and video segments brought to you by a partnership between the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, DBSA, and the American College of Neuropsychopharmacology, ACNP. The questions addressed in this series were selected from an online survey conducted by DBSA regarding the interest and concerns of individuals living with depression or bipolar disorder about research surrounding the cause and treatment of mood disorders. This podcast, Diagnosis, Causes, and Course of Mood Disorders, Part 2, features two of the nation's leading researchers in mental health, Dr. Ellen Frank, Professor of Psychiatry and Psychology at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and Dr. Andrew A. Nirenberg, Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. Our distinguished guests are interviewed by Sherry Jenkins-Tucker, Executive Director of the Georgia Mental Health Consumer Network, and Kevin Simbor, DBSA Chapter Services Coordinator.
1: Are there any research projects uh, being done on causes, um regarding genetics of mood disorders or heritability?
2: A lot. A lot. There's a yeah. huge amount of interest in this um, and, and uh, sort of one new direction where things seem to be going. Um, there's a huge interest now in the body's clocks. We're learning that we don't just have a clock in our brain. Um, our, you know, sort of biorhythm clock is not just in our brain, but that actually what we call circadian, which means the 24-hour day, circadian genes are expressed in virtually every organ of the body, including the skin. That, so even our skin has a clock. And so now there's some interest in looking at um, little hunks of skin and looking at the the, the clocks in our skin, and, and that these may actually be markers for bipolar disorder. Um, so, yes, there's a huge amount of interest in a variety of different genes and what they may be contributing to vulnerability for, especially, bipolar disorder. I think the hope. In genetics is much more in the bipolar disorder arena than the unipolar. At,
3: at the moment, yeah. They're also looking at the way that cells use calcium, mm-hmm. uh, and there's some very recent research that shows that the uh, the calcium channels, the 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 place where that controls how calcium goes in and out of a cell, that there might be something awry with that, and then there's a connection between the calcium and how our cells produce energy. And there's a lot of research that's looking at that also.
4: Can mood disorders um, ever be cured, or can people ever possibly grow out of them so that a person could live the rest of their life without treatment?
3: There are highly variable courses of the mood disorders. There are people who have one episode, and that's it. They never have another episode in their lives. There are other people who are chronically in an episode, and it's very hard for them to get out of it. And then there's everything in between. So the one thing we do know is that for those people who are vulnerable to have another mood episode, if they've had three or more mood episodes, for example, uh, Dr. Frank and colleagues at Pittsburgh have been in the forefront of understanding they need long-term treatment. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I think we're learning is the essential importance of good psychotherapy, and that helping people to be less stressed, of using very specific types of cognitive therapy, either cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal social rhythm therapy, even family-focused therapy, uh, if you help people regularize their day uh, and be able to have good social rhythms, but also to be able to interpret what happens to them in a less stressful way, mm-hmm. which is possible. You know, we try to teach people: don't believe everything you think. Right. And then you teach them how to think about how they think and all of a sudden the world looks a little different. Right. And all of a sudden it's a little less stressful and the psychotherapy can really help along with medication for many people prevent the mood episodes from coming
2: back. Mm -hmm. And I think an important point to make is that the kind of psychotherapy we're talking about is not a probing psychotherapy that goes back into the individual's past. These are what we call educative psychotherapies that teach people new ways of approaching their life. And if a constituent is involved in a therapy that is focusing on how to live his or her life in a new, different, less stressful way, how to think about what goes on in his or her life in a new way, that's the kind of psychotherapy that is going to be helpful. But to sort of trace back to your question, what I think we know is that, yes, there are individuals who only ever have one episode, and after a period of time, they probably can do very well without continuing medication and with very infrequent psychotherapy, if any, at all. People who have closely spaced episodes and who've had let's say two closely spaced episodes or three lifetime episodes, the evidence that individuals who have that kind of history are going to be able to do well without treatment is, is very clear. Those are individuals who are going to really require lifelong treatment in order to remain well.
3: And the, and the other people who are at risk are the people who have very severe episodes mm-hmm. and people who develop psychosis right. when they're ill and that being hallucinations, delusions. Uh, So that is usually an indicator that they really may need long-term treatment.
2: I I think we have in America this... um, I often say that in the U.S. we have independence in our genes. If you think about who came to the United States, it was all the independent ones. The people who weren't so independent stayed back in the old country. So we have this idea that we need to be independent of our medications, independent of our treatment. And what I try to encourage people to focus on is on being well. And if a medication helps you to be well, what a gift. If a psychotherapy helps you to be well, isn't that wonderful? Uh, you know, we don't worry when we have a broken arm about wearing a sling, and this is not different.
1: We spoke earlier about um, the earlier that a, a parent or a sibling, a relative, um, is, uh, develops a mood disorder. Um, does the age um, at which a person goes through this development um, affect the future course and severity of the illness? So
3: for bipolar disorder, the the younger the age of onset, the younger that it starts, in, in many ways it, it can be uh, troubling for those people. They, they can have other problems uh, and more of them, so that uh, especially if it happens before the age of 18, if there's a clear unequivocal episode of, of a mood disorder before the age of 18, then they have more problems with substance abuse and they clearly have more problems with anxiety. Um, And anxiety can really be a problem that needs to be addressed and recognized. Um, So yes, in answer to your question, yes, the earlier it is, the, the, the harder it is for people.
2: And I think it's also important for parents to know that the earlier their onset was in their life, the greater the risk to their children. We don't exactly understand why that's true, but we know that the earlier onset form seems to be more quote-unquote genetic, that is, more easily passed on to a child. How do hormones affect the course of mood disorders, particularly
4: with relationship to menopause?
2: Well, I think the evidence is that they probably don't. (laughs) Um... Hormonal changes clearly have effects on mood, but they have those same effects on mood for pretty much everyone. So, for example, the the transition through menopause can be very easy for some women and very difficult for others. And part of that will depend on how many physiologic symptoms they experience. So a woman who is having terrible night sweats and is waking up four or five times a night is going to have a difficult transition because it's awful to wake up four mm-hmm. or five times a night. Um, but we don't necessarily see that that, makes it, that the menopause is a, a, special, a special risk for mood disorders or that it necessarily makes mood disorders worse. A different question has to do with the premenstrual period and what we do know is that many women who have depression or bipolar disorder will experience a a worsening of their symptoms in those premenstrual days. And that's normal, it's not unexpected, so learning to anticipate that and how to manage it learning not to immediately assume that there needs to be a change in one's treatment. Those are some important things. But I'd focus more on the premenstrual period and the postpartum period, which we know is a very big risk period for especially onsets of bipolar disorder. Um, I'd focus on the the postpartum period and, and the premenstrual period more than the menopause.
3: And also for reasons that are not entirely clear, about twice as many women get depressed as men, but with bipolar disorder, it's about the same ratio. Uh, so there are some effects of hormones, other effects
1: uh, not. I know that we've just been speaking about uh, the different periods in uh, a, a life you know, involving hormones or changes and things like that with women, but what about to elderly people with bipolar disorder um, after many years of treatment, are there s- any special treatments or precautions, things that we need to be looking at uh, in terms of people in later life? So one of the things that we
3: know I- is that a very, very long periods of exposure to lithium can cause some renal problems, some kidney problems. So that just needs to be looked at, looked for, and screened for. Uh, There are these other medical problems that people are at a higher risk for, especially cardiovascular problems, and perhaps we should be telling our elderly patients to be in good shape and Mm -hmm. to try to get some exercise, uh, which sometimes can make a big difference. Uh, The other thing that we know is that one of the highest groups, uh, one of the highest risk groups for suicide are older white men, uh, for reasons also not entirely clear. But, uh, but you have to watch out for that,
2: too. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that as we age, almost all of us develop one little kind of medical problem, or not so little kind of medical problem, or another, and find ourselves on multiple medications. So someone who managed perfectly well on their medications for depression or bipolar disorder earlier in life, who is now on three additional medications may need some adjustment of their mood disorder medication. And and we need to watch for interactions among different medications, especially in elderly people.
1: Right. And we spoke about exercise um, and, you know, know, activity. Does that go across the board um, from youth, you know, throughout the ages, you know, to the elderly? Does that help?
2: What did your
1: grandmother tell you? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so you should eat foods that your
3: grandmother could recognize, <laughs> uh, you should exercise regularly. There's a lot of interesting research that exercise may also help us produce that brain fertilizer, those growth factors. And there's even research that if you add exercise to the antidepressants, it may help with depression. And we don't know about bipolar disorder yet, but we're starting to look into that.
2: What we do know, though, is that individuals who have bipolar disorder are at higher risk for a whole series of medical problems that we call the metabolic syndrome. And that consists of overweight and obesity, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and that even Small amounts of moderate exercise, 20 minutes of walking at a comfortable pace each day, can really make a difference in the development or the progression of these metabolic syndrome diseases. And
3: and there's a great way to do that, by the way. You tell somebody, walk for 10 minutes. Well, they have to come back home. So it's actually 20 minutes.
2: And, and, and try to help people think about ways in which they could get that exercise in. We know that that's incredibly difficult for someone who's in even a, a low-grade depression. But if you can just push yourself off the couch and even walk around your own apartment building, um, that can really be helpful.
4: Just as a, I'm just going to ask kind of a striking follow-up to your discussion. Do I hear you saying that having a mood disorder and or taking medications for mood disorders uh, shortens a
2: person's lifespan? Having a mood disorder shortens a person's lifespan. Or let me put it differently. There is a correlation between having a mood disorder and having a shorter lifespan. We don't know that it's the mood disorder that causes that. Rather, it seems it's likely that it's these medical diseases that go along with having a mood disorder that cause it. So, having heart disease shortens your lifespan. Having diabetes shortens your lifespan. What is also something we're very concerned about these days is the extent to which having a mood disorder prevents you from from being able to fully engage in the kinds of treatment that would help your heart disease or help your diabetes. So if you're chronically in a low-grade depression, managing your diet in a way that's helpful to your diabetes is much more difficult. Um, If you're chronically in a low-grade depression, getting yourself to the doctor for a regular checkup uh, is much more difficult so we're beginning to think about ways that we can integrate the care of mood disorders with the care for these physical problems that do seem to be important in shortening people's lifespan importantly we don't think it's the medications that we use to treat mood disorders that are shortening lifespan because if anything they may actually help the brain to grow and 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 maybe helpful in a number of ways, with the one exception of lithium, which may lead to some problems with the kidney that just need to be checked on on a regular basis.
3: And and actually we're even looking into whether or not lower doses of lithium added to other things may actually be
2: helpful. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things, uh, as a friend and family member, uh, we all want to know is how can we help someone that we love, that we care about? if they're not seeing that they have an issue, but we do, that they're you know, uh, acting out you know, perhaps you know, in a, uh, an episodic sense or developing a mood disorder, how can we best help them?
3: I think the best way to help them is to talk with them about what's happening, about that they may not be aware of what's going on, but this is what you're observing and you're worried about them. And perhaps because you're worried about them, maybe they could seek some help and it's something they might wanna consider. But I think in framing it as a caring worry uh, rather than an angry, you better get yourself to the doctor is gonna work better.
2: The other thing that we're learning is that if we can point out the consequences of what we're seeing, if we can point out the consequences of the person's irritability um, and, and how that's affecting his relationship with his boss or her relationship with her children, then we can begin to develop some ambivalence. Well, maybe I should think about treatment. Maybe there's something there. So working on trying to point out what it is that are the consequences of not getting treatment Um, can sometimes be helpful in in helping people with any kind of disorder, whether it's a mood disorder or a substance use disorder. These are techniques we've really learned from the substance use field.
3: Right. Maybe you may not realize when you're so irritable, it's actually hurting you. Maybe it's not getting you where you really want to go. Maybe it's not helping you get to your goals. What do you think? you think it's helping? It's not?
1: What about those who are in treatment, and they don't want, you know, a friend or their family members, their loved ones, spouses, going to talk to their doctors when, you know, as those, you know, ones who care about you, how do we get a chance to understand better what's going on?
2: That's a tough one. Um, I think the only suggestion I have there is to try to explore with the individual why it is that they don't want their family member involved. Maybe it's because there are certain things that are going on between the patient and the clinician, the therapist, that they want kept private. Okay, we can have an agreement that I'm not going to discuss that arena of your life. I'm just, I'm just concerned about knowing which medicines you should be taking and when you should be taking them so that I, I can reduce my anxiety um, about whether you're, you're <laughs> following the doctor's orders. Um, but there may be situations where it's just not possible. As much as the family member would like to be involved, it's just not possible for the individual who's suffering from the mood disorder to accept the idea of parental involvement or family member involvement. And I think that's often the case for adolescents and young adults, and it's just a very tough period that parents have to live through and uh, sometimes see your child make some mistakes before they figure out what needs to happen.
3: If it's possible at least to have communication with the treaters, with the person who is in treatment's permission, with the understanding that it will ultimately be of help to them because. Well, oh, you know, there's always several sides to a story. And sometimes if you're in the middle of a problem, it's hard to see things clearly. And it can be helpful if you have information from people who, who are able to observe and who care about you. So that can be helpful, and that, that's part of the negotiation. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I think one of the things we also need to do is to teach people who have mood disorders how to negotiate, Mm -hmm. how to advocate for themselves, uh, read Getting to Yes or The Power of a Positive No. uh, And it really can help both in terms of negotiating with family members, negotiating with the people you're trying to get help from.
4: Very helpful. Where can I find information on specialists in my area that deal with my specific of mood disorder challenges?
2: Well, we don't really have a good way of negotiating this. I mean, there's no zagat guide for doctors, although I heard that they're thinking about starting one. Um, You can sometimes begin by calling your mental health association or um, I think one of the best ways to find out about specialists is by contacting local depression and bipolar support alliance chapter patients who have experienced multiple doctors will be able to tell you whom they think has been able to be helpful and who has not but unfortunately there are many places in our country where there just really aren't specialists in mood disorders or there are
3: specialists but nobody has access to them
2: right so If you live in a a city where there's an academic medical center, a a medical school, that's sometimes a good place to start. At least you'll get information about people who've had good training. Um, But if you're in some small town, you know, where the nearest uh, medical school is two states away, it may be very difficult to find good help.
4: It's challenging. Um, How can I best share with my family and friends about the fact that I have a mood disorder to get the kind of support from them that I want and need?
3: Well, I think educating them is essential. I, I think the websites that are available through the DBSA, um, other websites through NIMH. Uh, we have an educational website called moodandanxiety.org the, where you help people learn about what these things really are, what, what's the mm-hmm. disorder, what to expect. And then there's the, the whole challenge of, okay, what's the mood disorder, what's you, what what's back and forth? But I, I think education is, is the best key. I
2: agree. Um, the more a family member or friend knows and understands about mood disorders, I think the more helpful they're going to be able to be. That being said, um, there are just times when it's very difficult to be a support to somebody who has a mood disorder. And it's important for family members and friends to know that they need to take care of themselves as well. We often use the analogy of the airplane where you're told to put on your oxygen mask first and then help the person next to you. So um, it's important for family members and friends not to become so exhausted, so depleted in trying to help the family member they care about and love. Um, that they can't be helpful.
3: And and I also think the support groups through DBSA uh, can be essential and very, very helpful.
1: Mm -hmm. Are there other places specifically, um, in, in addition to DBSA, the support groups locally or on a broader scale, that we can find out more about the causes, diagnosis, and courses of mood disorders?
3: Uh, I think there's uh, NIMH has a very the,
2: the National Institute of Mental yeah. Health, NIMH, has an excellent website that is full of good and accurate information. There's a lot of bad information, misinformation mm-hmm. out on the web. So I think relying on groups like the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, the National Institute of Mental Health, and again, websites of academic medical centers... Um, medical schools that have information about mood disorders um, both in the U.S. and outside. Um, There's a a, a wonderful one in Australia called the Black Dog Institute that has wonderful material on its website. It's in English. Australians aren't different from us. You can read that information. They
3: drink different beer.
2: That's true.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this special edition of DBSA Real Recovery Podcasts brought to you in partnership with the ACNP. Special thanks to our panelists, Dr. Ellen Frank and Dr. Andrew Nirenberg, and our interviewers, Sherry Jenkins-Tucker and and Kevin Simbor. Additional segments in this series include the podcast, Diagnosis, Causes, and Course of Mood Disorders, Part 1, and the video presentation, Medication, Treatment, and Working with Professionals. Please take a moment to share your thoughts and opinions about this segment and topic by filling out our online survey for Diagnosis, Causes, and course of Mood Disorders, Part 2 at www.dbsalliance.org slash ACNPA2.